Okay, well, I really feel bad for Madison because in her section last week, I lost track of how many people got stabbed in the stomach. It was brutal. And next week, she gets to tackle David and Bathsheba. And somehow, in the middle of all that, I get to walk you through, like, the absolute high points of David's life. Remember how in week one we kind of said how we're going to see the rise and fall of David's kingship? Well, tonight's kind of like the highest part of his rise, so enjoy it while you can, because it's going to get a little darker from here on out. We are going to approach the text tonight in a couple of different ways. So kind of the main thing I really want us to, to focus on tonight is asking the question, what was the original author trying to tell the original audience, okay? Now, as we do that, there are going to be times we're going to step back and also ask the question, what is the heavenly author telling the all people for all times audience? Because whenever we read scripture, this is an important skill that we learn. There's always two authors and two audiences, okay? You have the original human author who wrote this for an original human audience. Like in these epistles, it's a person who wrote a letter to another person. That's the original author and the original audience. In this case, we have some prophets who wrote this book for ancient Israel, a few generations probably after David. But you also have this idea that all scripture is God-inspired. So there's this heavenly author writing for all people for all time. So it's a good skill to learn what was the original author communicating to the original audience, and what are the truths that I'm supposed to pull from that that are for all people for all time. And so that's kind of what we're going to practice doing tonight. So just to sum up last week to kind of get you up to speed, if you remember last week, David became king over Judah, okay? Saul is finally dead. David became king over the southern tribe of Judah, but Saul's son was the king over all of the northern tribes of Israel. And then last week ended with the death of Saul's son, so now David is sort of poised to become king over all of Israel. So we're going to start in chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. So guys, this is it. David is finally becoming king over all of Israel. Now, if you're just jumping in with us in 2 Samuel, that might not seem like that big of a deal, because we're all pretty familiar with the idea of David as king. We learn that a lot in church. But if you went through 1 Samuel with us, then you felt it. It was a really long and a really difficult journey for David, and it is finally here. So for us, we've kind of seen David's journey. It feels like a no-brainer. Of course, we've seen how God has been at work. We see why he's the king. For the original audience, however, David becoming king would have probably been met with some challenges. So we need to think about that in order to answer the question, what was the original author telling the original audience? I want you to remember David is only the second king over all of Israel. So Saul was the first king who ruled over all of Israel. Now David is the second one. The model of kingship that they would have been familiar with is that when a king died, their son or closest descendant became the next king. This is the model that had been in all of the different cultures around them. This is all that they knew. Now David was not Saul's son. He was not even a blood relative to Saul. So he had no political claim to the throne. 
There was nothing in their politics to give reason to why David should be the next king. So it would have been really easy for the people of Israel to then question his kingship, especially if they weren't alive when David was alive and saw everything happening. So they would have been asking themselves, well, how do we know? Was David really Saul's choice, or did he just steal this kingship? Did he come in and grab it? Or was this really God anointing him? <clears throat> so ancient Israelite readers who weren't familiar with the whole story, they would have needed exactly how this kingship changed to a completely new genealogical line in order to accept it as legitimate. Okay? They would have been maybe questioning, is this legitimate? So the author in the chapters today is going to be very intentional to show exactly why David is the most suitable choice for a king to leave no questions in the minds of Israel. So look at these verses. Look back at these verses that we just read. <clears throat> this is the first way that the author is going to show the reader why David's kingship was legitimate. We see all of the tribes of Israel have come together, and the elders of these tribes are declaring why they think that David is the most suitable choice for a king. So they kind of give three grounds for why David should be the king. First, they say, we are your bone and your flesh. So what they're saying is they're, they're kind of drawing in this idea of kinship, because remember, David is not of Saul's bloodline, and that is a problem for him becoming the next king. So what they're saying is, we are all descendants of Jacob. We are all bone and flesh together, and so they're kind of drawing in this idea of kinship because that is something that was kind of making this kind of a questionable choice. <clears throat> Next, they say, even when Saul was king, David had been leading all along in the military campaign. So David really was the true leader all along. They had seen how he had been demonstrating his ability to lead. And then finally, and most importantly, these elders, they acknowledged that God himself called David to be the ruler of Israel. Okay, so this is a big deal. This would have given a lot of um, just grounds to why David would have been chosen. This would have carried great weight. So now the author, as we move on, he's going to spend the next few chapters listing a lot of David's accomplishments to show that, hey, look, God clearly was with David. Look at everything that David did. So when we move to this next section, starting in verse 6, now we're going to see that David established Jerusalem. And this is huge on so many levels. Jerusalem is easily the most important city in the Bible. It's mentioned over 800 times in scripture. So here we kind of get to see its birth. We get to see its beginnings as this hugely important city. So in verses 6 through 12, I'm not going to read them for the sake of time. But verses 6 through 12, they give us account, this account of David. and He's fighting the Jebusites. And he's claiming Jerusalem as the new city of David. <clears throat> Before we jump into that, I have a feeling that some of you in here are distracted about this idea where it said when you were reading about this idea of David's soul hating the lame and the blind. This is kind of something that's not super crucial to the text, the point of the text, so I'm not going to go very deep in it. But just in case that's something that you're hung up on, where it says, like, David hated the, the lame and the blind... That was basically the Jebusites taunting David. They were basically saying, we're so powerful, our fortress is so strong that even our lame and blind can fight you off. So when it then goes on to say things like, David hated those lame and blind, it's kind of like responding to that taunt. So if that was something that you were hung up on, I just wanted to ease your mind, David does not hate lame and blind people. But let's now focus on what is the point? What are we supposed to know from this? Well, up to this point, this city that they are trying to get, it was occupied still by the Canaanites. Like back in the book of Judges, God had told all the different tribes, different territories that they were supposed to settle. And the tribe that was supposed to settle this area failed to do so. They failed to wipe these people out. And so Israel has not settled in this place. There are no Israelites living here. In addition to that, it sat right on the border of southern Judah and northern Israel. 
And this was really important because since it was right there on the border, it wasn't in the south, it wasn't in the north, no Israelites lived there, it was neutral territory. This was a really good thing for David because at this time there was some tension between Judah and Israel, the northern tribes of Israel. Judah kind of accepted David right away and made him king, we saw, like seven years earlier. But the northern tribes of Israel didn't come around quite so quickly. They were sort of still loyal to Saul. They had put Saul's son on the throne. So it's, now David's in this tough spot. So if he sets up camp, if he sets up his like capital down in Judah, a lot of commentators have made the comment that he would have never been able to successfully rule the northern tribes of Israel. Like it just wouldn't have happened because of those tensions. And the same is true as if he had set up a capital city in the northern tribes, then Judah, he would not have been able to have control over them because there was just too much tension. So he was incredibly smart in taking this neutral territory to set up this city that was neither in the north, not in the south. And when in doing that, he was able to bring all the tribes back together to sort of create unity and help relieve and calm some of those tensions. So this was a pretty big deal. This had ripple effects because in doing this and kind of bringing together these tribes, settling in this neutral territory, David is able to start building an empire and he ushers in a new political order. Israel, to this point, one commentator like really went into detail on kind of how a nation like progresses through different stages. And they made the point that up to this point, Israel was kind of this tribal nation, like a nation of tribes. But with David building this empire, starting with this capital city in Jerusalem, he's kind of moving them into an actual national kingdom. So he's ushering in a new era for Israel. And that's a really big deal. So Jerusalem, when we read this account, it's not just one more city that Israel conquered. Hopefully you saw that when you did the, off, the homework. We saw that Jerusalem is like a symbol of God's rule over Israel. And it's the center of so much of Jesus' life and ministry. And then today we have all sorts of spots in scripture that point us to the future when Jesus returns and we have a new Jerusalem where God is going to rule and his kingdom will have no end. So we see Jerusalem and its implications all over the Bible and when we, when we look at that, we can see, like, this is its birth. Like, David's reign started off strong. Look at what David started early on in his reign. So we're at this high point, right? And as we move along in the text, we're going to get to verses 13 through 16. And we're given kind of this tiny little snippet here that David continued to take more concubines and wives. <clears throat> Have you ever watched a movie where it seems like everything is going so great, and then you get this like 10 second ominous scene where there's this tiny problem that you know is just gonna get bigger and wreak havoc later and cause kind of like all the chaos in the movie. That's kind of what these verses are. We saw some of this a little bit last week, and now it's getting a little bit stronger. This entire chapter, all the chapters that we're in right now, are organized to show the full impact of David under the blessing of Yahweh. And even here, even in this high point, we're getting this ominous little hint of the trouble to come. So we see the author weaving it in so that we are not caught off guard when it comes. But I think even when we're in this point in the text, it seems confusing. Like, what does this mean that we see all over the place that God was with David and blessed everything that he did, but yet David was sinning in this major way? It can be really hard for us to wrestle with that. And I kind of had you in your homework kind of wrestle with that a little bit. So I think... One of the things that we can take away are that God's plans are not dependent on man. All through scripture, we see two stories going on. We kind of see the story of what man is doing, and then we see the story about what God is doing on top of that or behind the scenes or through it or against it. Sometimes the story of what man is doing lines up with what God is doing as man is used by God or seeks God or tries to follow God's leadership. 
But sometimes men in the Bible are actively working against God. And sometimes we're just off over here on the side not really paying attention to God and have no idea what he's doing. But regardless of what people are doing, regardless of how much they're floundering around in the Old Testament, God's story stays steady and true and strong. It does not waver. It is not like stopped when people are kind of all over the place. So we see in this text that God has purposes and a plan for all of Israel at this point. This isn't just about David. This is about all of Israel. And David's sin is not going to stop God from fulfilling his purposes. God doesn't need us to be perfect for his perfect plans to come to be. We can't mess up what God is doing. Man's never going to be perfect. We see that even David, who's supposed to be this foreshadowing of Jesus himself, has major, major sins and falls short in huge ways. But God is full of grace. And not just grace to David, which, yes, he's going to show grace to David. We're going to see that throughout the text. But grace to all of Israel, because he's keeping his plans for them steady despite the shortcomings of their leader. And how much peace should that give us when we see the imperfections of the leaders in our own governments? I think a lot of times we can get worked up and think that everything is going to fall apart. But we need to remember that God's ways, God's purposes, and God's plans aren't going to be thrown off based on our sin or the sin of people who are leading us. And that should bring us great peace. So that's, that's one takeaway that I think that we can see by this kind of weird tension that we're seeing with David. Okay, so let's keep moving along. We've had this ominous hint of trouble. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of living on top. So let's enjoy this. So we're going to see verses 17 through 25. In these parts, we are going to see two accounts of David leading in battle and defeating the Philistines. So remember for a minute David's history with the Philistines. The Philistines knew David well. He had defeated their Goliath. He had met them several times on the battlefield. They had seen how he leads his warriors. And then for a period of time, he was living amongst the Philistines, pretending to have turned against his own people because Saul was trying to kill him. And so he had actually lived among them. So they knew David well. They knew his ability to lead. They knew what a warrior he was. And so they knew that David, as king over a now unified Israel, was going to pose a really big threat to them. So they decide that they're going to take action, and they're going to advance for battle. And so both times, as the Philistines are kind of advancing for battle, David inquires of the Lord to see what he should do. Should I go out and meet them in battle, he's wondering. And both times, he follows the Lord's instructions and has victory. Now, this is very different from how we saw Saul leading back in 1 Samuel, and we're meant to see that. We're meant to see this contrast between Saul, who would always disregard God's instruction, or maybe not even seek it at all, versus David, who sought it out and followed it. Even though there was these two battles that were similar, he could have easily said, well, this is pretty much the same thing. I don't need to ask God again, but but he did. He asked us again. So he is very faithful and wanting to know what God would have him to do. Now, when we look at these battles, there's some beautiful details that I don't want us to miss. And I wish that I included some questions about this in the homework, but honestly, I didn't even see it until I dug in further this week. And this ended up being maybe one of my favorite parts. And so it's so beautiful, I don't want you to miss it. So first, let's look at this first battle. We see that after the first battle, the Philistines left their idols. In verse 21, it says that David and his men carried away the idols of the Philistines. Now, in this time period, when you beat somebody in battle and you carried away their gods or their idols, it basically shows that you didn't just beat them, but that your god beat their god, or your gods beat their gods, whatever nation you were. So this was a significant statement, this idea of carrying their idols away. It's a statement kind of about the gods that are over you, okay? I want you to remember, if you did the First Samuel study, this 
in 1 Samuel, it started, well, kind of near the beginning. There was this account of the Philistines and Israel in, in, like, in battle, in a war. And the Philistines kind of defeat them, okay? So I'm going to refresh your memory or fill you in if you weren't here. This was one of my favorite stories in 1 Samuel. We saw in 1 Samuel that Israel's hearts were not with God. They were worshiping other gods. They were doing their own thing. But then they're kind of faced with this battle against the Philistines. And so they're thinking, well, how can we, how can we handle this? How can we beat the Philistines? So we don't see them go to God. We don't see them ask God what they should do. But what they do is they say, I know. Let's bring the ark. Let's bring the ark out in front of us because if we bring the ark of God, he's going to have to give us victory because of what we just learned about, like, if you carry off their idols, it's like you defeated their gods. And they're thinking, well, God's not going to let himself be humiliated and let himself be defeated when his actual presence is there. We're going to force him to come alongside of us. We're going to force him to give us victory. And so that's so what they do. Like it, they're kind of recreating what happened in Jericho. So we see this battle where they bring out the ark and they're expecting God to not want to, you know, like be humiliated in front of the Philistines and give them victory. When we read that story, we saw God would not be manipulated. Because remember, God had a covenant with Israel. He had this conditional covenant that said, if you worship me and me alone, I will give you victory and prosperity. But if you are worshiping other gods, then I will bring defeat and calamity upon you. Okay, this was the clear terms of the covenant. So Israel, when their hearts are far from God, God is going to be faithful to that covenant. He is not going to give them victory in this war when their hearts are far from him. That would be going against his covenant. And he is not too concerned with what the Philistines think about him. So God allowed Israel to suffer defeat. And because of this, the Philistines carried the ark away to their own territory. This was a significant thing that happened in 1 Samuel. I really wish that I could explain everything that happened after that because it was so amazing how God kind of like returns back. But we don't have time for that. I had to cut it out. But here, when we read that now David and his men are carrying away the idols of the Philistines, I think we're kind of meant for that original story in 1 Samuel to come back to mind. Because remember, 1 and 2 Samuel are all one book. So if you're reading this as one book, we had a story earlier on where the Philistines carried the Ark of God away. And now the Israelites are carrying the Philistines' idol away. And so now we're seeing that things have come full circle since the beginning of the story. Then this gets illustrated even further in the second battle that starts in verse 22. So in the second battle, like after David carries the idols of the Philistines away, the Philistines have come up yet again. And David asks yet again, what should I do? And God actually gives him like different instructions this time. So let's read what God told him to do here. We're going to start in verse 23. Okay. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching on the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So we see that in the second battle here, David is supposed to wait until he hears marching on the tops of the trees. Now, I missed this the first few times I read this because in my mind, I was just thinking, oh, marching. I guess that he's like, it's a sign that when he hears the Philistines marching or something, you know, like I just assumed that this was the marching of the other camp or the other army. But guys, this marching that he was supposed to listen for, this was the audible marching of God going out ahead of him. Like, how amazing is that? David was supposed to listen for the sound of God and his heavenly armies in the treetops marching out ahead of them in battle. So think again to what was happening in 1 Samuel in that other battle when their hearts were far from him. They were trying to force God's presence to be with them by forcing the ark to come, and they failed. 
They were not able to force God to come and fight this, this battle for them. But here, God physically comes to fight the battle for them. He physically is there doing it. There's no manipulation necessary. They didn't even have to drag out the ark. God himself came out. So we see, as one scholar put it, he said, where earlier attempts failed, David succeeds. I just love that. And I think there's some big, big takeaways there for us to, to, that I just don't want us to miss. So I think one takeaway that I really don't want us to miss from this, we can see through this idea, these two battles, the one in 1 Samuel compared to these ones here, that there's a big difference between expecting God to bless our own plans versus us seeking to be a part of his plans. Because in 1 Samuel, Israel had their own plans to win against the Philistines, and they just expected God to show up and bless it. They didn't ask God what they should do. They weren't worshiping him in any way. They made plans that they thought looked good to them, and they expected God to show up and bless it. Here, though, David asked God what his plans were. What were God's plans? What would God have them to do? How often in our own lives do we make plans for our own purposes that just seem good to us, that make us happy, and then pray and ask and expect even God to come in and bless our plans? How often are we angry when he doesn't give us what we ask? Guys, how different would our lives look if instead we said, God, what are you doing? If we asked God what his plans are and how we can be a part of his agenda, and I think that that is when we would start to see him move in mighty and powerful ways. Because God's not a puppet. He's not here just to make our own plans come to pass. But when our hearts are in submission to his will and his leadership, when we become a part of his plans, then we might have the amazing blessing of seeing him move in mighty ways, the same way that David got to see him physically fighting a battle for him, which is incredible. So I think that that's a huge takeaway. Guys, we aren't fighting battles the way that they were. It's easy, to, it's easy to look over these battle scenes. I know me and Madison were joking earlier that sometimes we get to the war sections and we're like, ah, another battle, and we kind of skim over it because there's so many, right? But guys, I think we can get so much out of this when we take the principles behind it and draw those principles and think, how does this still apply to me? Okay, we're going to move on to chapter 6. And the author is going to continue to show David's legitimacy as king by showing how he brought a lot of religious significance to this new capital city of Jerusalem. So here in chapter 6, David is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And this is a really big deal because the Ark of the Covenant, it represented a lot. It represented the most powerful sign that God was supporting David and this new capital city. So we're going to go ahead and read this account together. Chapter 6, verse 3. <clears throat> and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Okay, we're going to stop there because, man, that feels brutal, doesn't it? I really struggled with this one, like every time I read it, because I just kept on thinking, we know that God looks at the heart, and it seems like Uzzah's heart was in the right place. Like he didn't want the ark to fall down, and so it was his instinct to protect it. And how many times in the Old Testament do we see people do, like, horrific things and they don't get struck down? And so what is the deal? Why is Uzzah getting struck down? 
Well, in your homework, I had you do a little bit of research about how the ark was supposed to be carried. So you should have seen that earlier on in the Bible, God gave very specific instructions to Israel on how they were supposed to carry the ark. So after reading what happened to Uzzah, I really think that these instructions were meant to protect them. He was trying to protect his people because these instructions were that they were supposed to carry it with poles that went through these rings. So that way they wouldn't have to touch it. And it was supposed to only be carried by a very specific family who I'm guessing would have been very well acquainted with how to carry it safely because it was their primary responsibility. Here in this account, though, we see that for whatever reason, David didn't follow those instructions. I don't know if he didn't know or if he forgot or if he didn't think that they were that big of a deal. We're not really told why he didn't do it this way. But all that we know is that rather than follow God's instructions, they try to move the ark on a cart pulled by oxen. Now, I've never moved anything on a cart with oxen, so I don't really know how that goes, but when I picture it in my mind, it feels very wobbly. And we also have established in the text that they are on a hill. So I can see how much more likely it might be that somebody would end up having to touch the ark with it being carried this way. So I think when we consider all of that, it really looks like God loved them so much that he gave them clear instruction on how to carry it in a way that would be safe. So when Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark, we can, we can know that God did not kill him because God is unloving. Like, God is not unloving. That's not what happened here. God was trying to protect everybody from that very thing happening. So I think that God killed him because he is holy. And when he says don't touch the ark, he means that for our protection because a sinful person can't come in contact, in physical contact, with a holy God and live. That's why they have this whole sacrificial system where they have to sacrifice animals even to be in right standing with God, okay? So when you consider his holiness, this wasn't God punishing him for touching the ark. It's the fact that God is holy. We in our sinful state cannot contact him and live, which is why we need Jesus, which is why they needed the sacrificial system, and which is why he gave them so many instructions to protect them from this happening. So I just don't want us to leave here feeling like God is unloving or harsh. So this happens, and it's a tragedy. So David decides to leave the ark. He leaves it kind of with a foreigner who's leaving in, who's in the area because he's like, how am I going to do this? Like, this is just going to bring death. But then we see that the ark being with this foreigner brings a lot of blessings and prosperity to the foreigner. And so then David is like, okay, well, this shows that the presence of God is supposed to bring blessing. It's supposed to bring flourishing, not death. And so now David, he kind of gets the courage up again. He's like, okay, well, we are going to bring this to this capital city because we want the presence of God. We want the blessings and the flourishing that come with the presence of God. So we see one of those themes that we talked about in week one that makes David so great. We see some humility and repentance here because David decides to try again, but this time he does it in the manner prescribed by God, and he's able to successfully bring the ark into Jerusalem. So like if you see in verse 13, it says, And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So we see that there are people taking steps as they bear the ark of God. So we're given this visual image that they are carrying it with poles the way they are supposed to. So this is a good thing. The Ark of God is coming into Jerusalem. How exciting. Let's see what happens next. We are going to read starting in verse 16. And I'm going to skip around a little bit. So let's skip some parts here. So as the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And then I'm going to skip to verse 20. Because then the, the ark makes it there, and they set it up in a tent. And then verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, 
how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants whom, of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So what's happening here? Well, we see here that David is leaping and dancing. He's probably wearing what one commentator described as maybe like a linen loincloth. And then we see Michal watching from the window, and the text says she despised him in her heart. I really wish that we had more information about what had been going on with Michal from like, this leading up until now. All we have are a few snippets over like the last several chapters and from starting in 1 Samuel. So let's review. Let's review who Michal was. We saw in 1 Samuel that she is Saul's daughter that was given to David in marriage. And the homework, hopefully you saw that when they first got married, she really loved David. Well, the homework is clear about that, like when we look back. Um, when David was like running from Saul and Saul was trying to kill him, Michal protected him and kind of like hid him from Saul, her own father, who was the king. So she chose David over Saul, okay? She's kind of this picture of this loving and faithful wife. It's a very, very positive image in 1 Samuel. Then, however, after David had to run for his life, Saul did not like David so much anymore, so he decides he can't have Michal anymore, his daughter. So he gave his daughter Michal to another person to marry them instead. And then several years go by, during which time we know that David has now taken multiple other wives and concubines. And then last week we saw that for what many people think was just a political play, David demands that Michal be taken from her current husband, who from the heartbreaking scene that we saw seemed like he loved her very much. So then she's brought back to David, not by her choice, and not just to him, but to like this growing harem of women. So I feel like when you see her whole story, I kind of can like empathize with her a little bit. And I'm just like, well, gosh, if I saw my husband out like dancing, I don't think that she simply despised him because of the way he was dancing. I think that there's a lot of history and a lot of complexity into what led her to that place of despising him. So he comes in, she gets mad at David, and David rebukes her, and he says that his leaping and dancing were before the Lord. And then we are just told, very plainly, that she had no child until the day of her death. So I want to stop and address this for a minute, because I think as women, sometimes we look at the Old Testament, and we see a lot of harsh treatment of women, and it's tough. It's tough for us to wrestle with. It's tough for us to look at the Old Testament and say, well, gosh, like, does God love women? Does God value women? And I think when we look at texts like this, and make assumptions about them or kind of fill in gaps, a lot of times it can seem more unloving than it really is. So I want to kind of talk about some options of what could be going on here. Commentators kind of have differing opinions on how they interpret this section. Some commentators read this and they kind of say, oh, Michal, she's like representing her father. She's representing Saul in his way of life. And they kind of describe her as bitter. And they would say that having no children is God's punishment on her. So there are commentators who say, actually a lot of commentators who say that, and that is definitely one possibility. I don't want to say that that's not what's happening. But I want you to notice that the text does not actually say that God was punishing her. And so another way that we can see this, what other commentators have pointed out, is that this could just be documenting an argument between her and David, because they have said if she had the statement coming after their argument that says she had no children, I think most of the commentators, whether or not they think that this is God's punishment or not, they all have kind of said in agreement 
this meant that David then sort of cast her aside and never had relations with her again. He never went to her again. So because of this argument, this was like a turning point where he basically never had relations, so there were no children that came from this marriage. So this could have been divine judgment, or it could have just been the author's way of saying, hey, all was not well between David and Michal, and now they had no children. Okay, now... We don't know for sure which of those is the case, but either way, I think it'll help give us some insight when we step back and remember what was the original author's purpose in this whole section for the original audience. I want you to remember, Michal was Saul's daughter. So if she had a son, that would be Saul's grandson, which means that he would be a part of Saul's bloodline, and then he would have claim to the throne. So this is a problem for the Israelite reader. There, we saw a lot last week how the, this author is doing a great, like going to great efforts to show how Saul's line is cut off because they're making a case for David being the valid choice. Part of that case is Saul has no line left to fall back on. It's not like there's some legitimate heir from Saul that should have claimed that David is then taking it from. We saw in 1 Samuel, God said, I'm going to cut off your line after you. And then we see person after person from Saul's line that gets killed. And then last week we saw Mephibosheth, who is crippled. And like because of that culture, he was not like a suitable candidate for the king. So now for the audience that who are thinking, well, wasn't David married to Michal? If they had kids, wouldn't they be next in line for the throne of head of David? Because that child would be of Saul's line. So for the Israelite reader... Showing this picture of how David and Michal were not just happy and married ever after, it assured them that Saul's line was, in fact, cut off, just like he did last week with all of those other instances. So the purposes of this is not just to say, hey, look at how great David is. Ah, Michal, she was kind of terrible. Like, that wasn't the author's purpose. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. But it fits when you say the purpose is to assure the reader that Saul had no legitimate heir to the throne. His line had, in fact, been cut off, which again makes David's new line more solid and more valid, okay? So I hope that that kind of helps as you wrestle through. And again, I don't know, maybe, maybe this was some of God's judgment on Michal because I don't know her whole story. Maybe her heart had turned from God, I don't know. But I, I'm hesitant to ascribe a meaning to a text when it doesn't actually say that, and there's a different meaning that actually fits better and makes more sense. So this is why we like comprehension level work. Okay, so let's move on because we still have a lot to cover. Let's move to chapter 7. And again, we could do a whole study on just chapter 7. One commentator describes this chapter as one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. Okay, there is a lot here. So we're going to just read the first half of chapter 7 starting in verse 1. <clears throat> now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel. 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So what's happening in this section is that David wants to build a house for the Lord. And this is a good thing. David has really good intentions. This is really honorable. David loves God, and he sees that his ark has been in a tent while David now has this amazing new palace. So there's nothing wrong with what David wanted to do. It was actually such a no-brainer, such an obvious thing that he would want to do this, that his prophet Nathan, his first instinct was he didn't even hesitate. He was like, yes, do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. However, we see that that night God had other plans. God had bigger plans because God came to Nathan, the same, that prophet, that same night, and he tells him, no, David is not to build him a house. Instead, God is going to build a house for David. And there's some wordplay that goes on in the original language because he's not just going to build David a house in the sense of a building with walls. He's going to build him a house as in a dynasty. He's building a home not just for David, but for all of Israel, for God's people. And he doesn't just stop there. In this section, God is actually making a covenant with David. So this part of scripture, these promises that God makes to him, this is known as the Davidic covenant, okay? And in this covenant, he's telling David, hey, your house and your kingdom are going to be made sure forever. Your throne, your bloodline, your line on the throne is going to be established forever. It will never run out. So we see David had some plans to serve and honor the Lord, but God's plans were far greater. Because God had plans that were the, for the future of David, for the future of Israel, and for the future of all mankind. Because we know that in this promise, from the line of David is going to one day come Jesus, who will sit on the throne for eternity and is going to make a way for a new covenant. Where we can be res reconciled to God and we can be with him forever. So David didn't know it at the time, but this covenant right here in chapter 7 is ultimately the promise of Jesus, the future Messiah and the better king to come. Guys, this covenant with David, I hope you can see this is a huge deal. So how does David respond? Is he angry because he didn't get to do what he wanted to do because that would have made him look really good? No, of course not. David, the whole second half of this chapter is him responding with a lot of awe and a lot of wonder and a lot of praise. And he's incredibly thank you, thankful. He responds with deep thankfulness. We see in verse 22, he says, Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. Because you see, in that time, it was actually common practice for kings in this part of the world to build like palaces for their false gods and their idols and things like that. Um, there's a lot of historical accounts outside of the Bible and outside of Israel of kings doing this very thing, where they would want the favor of their gods, so they would kind of buy the favor of their gods by building their gods, like these extravagant temples and houses. So their gods, these false gods, they needed to be bought with fancy houses. And David makes clear here, there is none like Yahweh, because Yahweh would remain with his people in a tent. He would insist that he would have no house until his people had a house. He would have no rest until his people had rest. What false gods of all these other nations would have ever done that? 
And then even more, we see God selling, saying that he's going to bring immeasurable blessings to his people, not because they bought him off, not because they built a house for him, um, not because they did all this stuff for him first. No, he's going to bless them with this everlasting security simply because he is good. His house can come later. He's not too concerned about that. Now, I don't want to make this seem like I'm questioning David's intentions. I think that David had great intentions. I don't think he was trying to buy off Yahweh the way these other kings would sometimes do. But I think that when he makes this comment, I think the message is clear. There truly is no God like our God, because none of the false gods of any surrounding nations would have ever responded the way that Yahweh responded when David wanted to build him a house. So then we move on to chapter 8, and this can seem a little weird and jarring. It kind of seems like we're taking a hard turn here because we just had this amazing covenant where God is promising some amazing things, and now we have a list of wars. So it feels a little bit like, wow, we just took a big turn, didn't we? But um, I'm not going to read this chapter just for the sake of time, but essentially in chapter 8, there's just a list of several kings and several nations that David and his armies defeated several places that they made slaves out of, several, like a lot of bronze and wealth from other nations that they were able to take. So what's going on here? We should ask when things seem out of place, why is this chapter right after the covenant chapter? Well, I want you to think about what God promised David. Now, us, reading this a few thousand years later, we're on the other side of Jesus coming, and so we can see how this covenant is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. But David and all of Israel did not have that same advantage. And I want you to remember the original audience here, okay? The original audience is ancient Israel a few generations after the death of David, most likely. Now, we already talked about how the original authors were trying to show these ancient Israelites why David was a valid choice for king. He's done this in a lot of ways so far. He started by saying, hey, the elders of all of the tribes came and declared for these reasons why he was a suitable choice. Look, David established Jerusalem, and he built us an empire. There's so many reminders along the way of how Saul's line is cut off anyway. There is no line of Saul to fall back on. They're showing over and over again that God was with David by just stating it outright. We saw in these battles that the author said God was even physically with David in battles as David when David was the king. And then in chapter 7, we have an account of the covenant that God made with David. And now, in chapter 8... For the ancient Israelite reader, the author is showing them how God was faithful to that covenant. So chapter 8 shows that the promises that God made in chapter 7 did have a level of fulfillment during David's life. They weren't fulfilled completely. We know that because we can see how they're fulfilled completely in Jesus. This was not their final fulfillment. But this partial fulfillment that we see in chapter 8 would have proven to the Israelites that God is faithful and that David was the true choice for king. So we saw in chapter 7 that God promised rest from their enemies, and then chapter 8 shows how God gave Israel rest as they conquered all of these nations and built up their, their name to be great. God promises to make David's name great. We see that happening in this chapter. God promises to make a house for his people, and now in chapter 8, God is bringing bronze and riches to make that house great. And then this entire section can be summed up in verse 15 that says, So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. So I want you now to take a minute and think back to when you first read through the four chapters, like the first time you kind of sat down and read through all four. They probably felt like a lot of different topics and a lot of different sections. But do you see, though, what the author was trying to do for the original reader? 
the events in these chapters, they're not even recorded chronologically. Like this is all out of order. So this isn't history, like just telling us what happened in the order it happened. This is history recorded with a very specific purpose. The authors told all these stories about David and they did it in a specific order to build their case. They wanted to show how David became king, how God was with him and all that he did, how he built Israel into a nation, how God made a covenant with him, and then how God made good on that covenant. So for Israelites a few generations after David's death who didn't live through the reign of David and maybe were questioning, well, was this right of David to replace Saul or was David just, did David just steal that kingship or was he really put there by God? After reading all of this, there would be no doubt for the Israelite reader that David was the only acceptable and suitable king. Now, that is the original author's intention for the original audience, but we don't live in a political system anything like this. So I, for one, didn't really need to be convinced that it was okay to switch from Saul's line to David's line. That really does not matter to me at all. Like, we don't live that way. We don't have the same systems. So then we can ask, but the thing, the, there's principles and meaning here that we still can draw that still apply for us. So I want us to step back, look at the big picture, and see what do we see in this big picture that is for all people for all time. Well, this particular section is really amazing because it points us to the very beginning of Scripture, and it points us to the very end of Scripture. We see in the book of Genesis that God makes a lot of promises to Abraham, one of those main patriarchs and fathers of Israel that we kind of talked about in week one. In Genesis, God promises Abraham that one day his descendants are going to be a great nation and that God was going to bless them. Well, here in 2 Samuel, we just saw that when David is crowned king over Israel, he's the one who ushers in this new era where Israel actually does become a great nation. We also see all throughout this section that God's blessing over Israel is abundantly clear. So we're seeing that this promise that God made to Abraham is coming to fruition. Also in Genesis, God gave Abraham a list of the lands that his descendants would one day have. And do you know what the very last place on that list was? It was the land of the Jebusites. And who did David take Jerusalem from? The Jebusites. So when David establishes Jerusalem, we again are seeing a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham around 800 years earlier. So we see that these chapters, they're looking to the past, they're fulfilling promises of the past, but they're also looking to the future. Because in the covenant that God makes with David, so many people have just really talked so much about how much this covenant points to when Christ returns, points to the end times, when that covenant is going to be completely fulfilled. The last two chapters of Revelation, I think Madison took us there last week, they make clear that God is preparing a new Jerusalem for us and that the dwelling place of God is going to be with man and death will be no more and he is making all things new. So this is a clear future and complete fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David in chapter 7. So we see this section of scripture, it's anchoring some of the earliest promises of God with some of the last ones. It's pointing us to Genesis and it's pointing us to Revelation. And it does so by giving us a picture of this amazing and incredible king. A king who ushers in a new era for his people. David ushers in an age of flourishing and of rest. An age of security and prosperity. But remember, David is just a foreshadowing. A foreshadowing of a greater king. And all of this flourishing and security and prosperity and rest, it pales in comparison to the new age that is ushered in by the newer and greater king, Jesus. Like Madison explained last week, we're kind of in the already but not yet of this new age that Jesus ushers in. So we should ask ourselves, 
we've seen a picture in this text of what this looked like for Israel, this flourishing, this rest. And we need to ask ourselves, are we experiencing the flourishing, the rest, the security, and the spiritual prosperity that comes when you serve the king of kings who has conquered the enemies of Satan, sin, and death? When we serve this king that offers us everything that this world can't, because if David lived it under Israel, how much more should we be living and experiencing it under Christ? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this beautiful picture that you've given us in the text tonight, just this, this glimpse of what is to come. Um, I pray that just we would all just be encountering your spirit as we continue on in these, our discussion groups, that you would... Just continue to reveal things to us, bring things to light, and just change us and change our hearts in ways that only you can. So God, I pray that as we discuss, you would help us to continue to dwell on the things that you want us to dwell on from this talk, and that we would also dwell on um, the new things that we bring up with each other. God, I pray that this would be fruitful conversation led by your spirit, and that we would be able to, as we leave here, experience a little bit more of what it is like to be living in your kingdom, Lord. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.